Tomorrow Into Today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow Into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again, today we have Bonnie Evangelista from the CDAO, helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, Ben McMartin, Senior Fellow at the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. So thank you for joining us today. Bonnie, the floor is yours. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for joining me today. Nice to be here. <laughs> I know oh, this is banter. This is banter. Yeah, this is banter. Ben, you're. I feel like you're one of those people who... I haven't known you for a long time, but I feel like I've known you for forever. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the work we do, because we're both kind of passionate about contracting and how people can be creative in contracting. You have some good history in doing the stuff that I'm doing, especially with regard to OTs, other transactions, and using other transaction authority in particular. I feel like I've only scratched the surface, but this is something I feel like you've been doing for quite a bit in your career. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of were up and coming in your career in the Department of Defense and what your introduction to OTs were like? So I don't go back as far as some people. There are there are some active agreements officers, or well, they're probably they're probably a little further up the chain nowadays, but there are some active folks who were there close to when DOD got their authority in the early 90s. So, so you have some folks who have been doing it a long time, particularly the folks over at DARPA who have been doing it a long time, but you have some other pockets of folks as well. I've heard it's got my introduction to other than FAR contracts. So I'll expand a little bit beyond OTA to include grants and cooperative agreements and technology investment agreements and and a number of other type of instruments. In 2009, 2010, I was working for what was at the time TACOM Contracting Center that does not exist anymore. It turned into Army Contracting Command and then Army Contracting Command Warren. And I believe today it's called um, Army Contracting Command Detroit Arsenal. And I was fortunate enough to have a customer that was the lab for uh, TACOM, which was Tardec. And Tardec does lots of cool stuff. And so I got exposed to early research, basic and applied research. I got exposed to prototyping efforts and test and evaluation and a whole number of activities that are super unique and super cool, right? I'm sure, I did a lot of FAR contracting, did a lot of it. And, you know, we're growing up in, in Army contracting, I did tons of just straightforward spares contracting, services contracting, systems contracting even R&D contracting. But I loved R&D. I loved the creative nature of it. I loved all the alternative authorities that were available. And it wasn't just the work that was cool. The contracting was cool along with it, which is, which is awesome for contracting nerds when your part is cool as well. In addition to the science that you're seeing, that's that's really cool. So in 2009, 2010, I got exposed to a lot of those alternative type approaches to acquisition or assistance. I, I didn't stay there. I moved around a lot. 
in my career. And then, but I circled all the way back to supporting Tardec in R&D and then actually going to work for Tardec at the end of my time with the Department of the Army before I went into private practice. So I've, I've done it a long time, not as long as most or well, some, I guess, not most. And I, I worked in these authorities before they had their, their renaissance in the 2015-2016 area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you, when you say you were, I, I'm hearing you say you were drawn to R&D, what made it cool for you? There's something unique about R&D that each effort is different. I, I suppose that's true on the services and, and systems and sustainment side to a degree. But in, with services and sustainment in particular, there's a lot of repetition and there should be a lot of standardization. There is still quite a bit of re, reinventing the wheel in the contract profession on those sides, but there doesn't need to be. On the R&D side, there, it lends itself to creating something new, working with the customer on what they're trying to achieve technically and then understanding how the contracting function can be a part of that team. And it is a team. Uh, that's the other unique thing. And during my time in services procurement, I certainly didn't feel that way. Services procurement was very customer threw it over the fence. You executed, you threw it back over the fence. And honestly, it lent itself to that. So it was okay. In R&D, you have to be part of the solution. So you'll find you'll find attorneys pitching in on on the technical side, you'll find the contracting folks, you'll find the cost price analyst folks, and it's more of a team sport. And, and that definitely lends itself to, to, to my personality and what I enjoy. I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But you also said that you felt OTs had a little bit of a renaissance period in 2015. What does that mean? Yeah, so I definitely managed OTs and there were OTs in existence at TACOM in 2009-2010. TACOM kind of gets a bad rap for OTs because TACOM was the home of Future Combat Systems. One of the big aspects of Future Combat Systems is that it had an OT component to it. Sometimes the OT component gets blamed for future combat systems, which was not a successful program. There is a very unique SASC hearing from quite quite a few years ago in which Senator McCain rails a, a bit against OTs and, and especially production follow-on OTs in relation to future combat systems. But but ultimately the the folks that that performed under that will tell you it wasn't the it wasn't the OT that caused the the program failure, even though it got blamed for it, there was many contracts tied to that as well. And so that was a kind of a bad rap that, that TACOM got when it came to that specific program, which was a giant program at the time. But in the background, let's take it away from, from FCS for a second. In the background, the, the R&D world was always using OTs and, and they were using OTs to engage with the commercial automotive industry like Ford and General Motors, they were doing very unique type of R&D that I see in the headlines today. Well, in 2009, that stuff was was going on at the Army in terms of new silicon structures for microelectronics and convoy tracking systems and autonomous vehicles, you know, way back when. And so OTs were were used there as, as well as with the university system. And so you had plenty of participants throughout that time in my my early time, which was not the early time of, of OTs, right? 2009 was not the early time of OTs. They, they were, they were approaching 
15 years, 20 years at that point. So you have this group that continued to do it. And, and so when I say Renaissance, it's interesting because the OT used to, didn't stop. It continued all the way from 94 and, and through 2009 and through 2015. But in 2015, Congress and, and some very savvy staffers at Congress, and including some folks who, who I'm fortunate enough to call friends, I would say Bill Greenwald in particular, we're looking at this and saying, okay, hey, OTs weren't the problem. We've tried commercial acquisition through FAR Part 12 and FASA, and that didn't take hold. Let's revisit this OT thing. And, and so really in, in 2015, the work's going on because at the end of calendar year 2015, when you get the, the signing of the FY16 NDAA, it puts back in that production follow-on authority, which is really what gives the value to the prototyping authority of OTs. And it gave it its own statute. This is something that we don't ever talk about, but in 2016, prototype OTs got a statute. Okay, they've been around since 94. What does that mean? Well, since 94, they were a note attached to the research OT authority. And folks had to, inter first you had to find the note. Good luck, right? You had to find the note and then you had to interpret what the note meant. And then there was an entire DOD guide built off this single note. And you don't get a statute until 20, 2016 or FY, the, the NDAA in 2016. And what's crazy about that is in between that, you had the Department of Homeland Security was created. They got OT authority based on that note again. The Department of Energy got OT authority again through that note. And so you have a lot hanging off of this just kind of random note that, that was created in there. And, and a lot of people just created their own rules around that, which was cool. But in 2016, thanks to a lot of staff work, they came back and said, all right, let's grab all the goodness out of what's happening in this note, the prototype authority, and let's create a statute around it. When you say a note, a note within the statute or a note? somewhere else, like a memo or something? So it was a note within the statute. Originally, the OT authority was for research and development. So basic and applied. Right. And and I'm, I'm going to butcher which year. I want to say 94, but it might have been later. There was a note, an amendment to the statute that included a note, which gave a very short paragraph that said, hey, oh, by the way, prototypes too. And then, and then someone had to go, oh, it said, oh yeah, on prototypes too, let's build an entire practice or a way of doing business around that. And, and of course, DARPA had direct authority and then DOD got it. So, so DARPA was, was built directly in to be ahead of the game on this and, and they really ran with it. And to this day, they have some very smart people that I, I, I think one of them for sure was there at the beginning, but they have some folks that came just shortly thereafter who are still doing really cool stuff. Within the statute, there's a note that just talks about prototype and people kind of ran with that, which sounds kind of fun. But you said Dar DARPA was given prototype authority directly. So the statutory, they, they were given authorization within the statutory language to do prototyping. So like they were given kind of the Well, DARPA inherited the direction. Everybody got it from the note. Everybody got it from okay. the note. So, okay. but, but the original statute for OT authority was, was here, DARPA, you get OT authority. And then after is, that, yeah. it, it was, okay, DOD, oops, you too, you get OT authority. The timeline you're describing, like 2009, 2010 timeframe, and then moving on to 2015. So I was at Department of Homeland Security. I don't 
recall if DHS S&T had their OT authority from the beginning, but TSA, Transportation Security Administration, did. And I very, let's see, so around 2012-13 is when I remember doing OTs for TSA. But it was not for prototyping purposes. They had a, a very different authority and purpose of the authority. So it's interesting that you're drawing a correlation over there because you're saying like all these other people were building their practices and stuff like that on a single, almost like an afterthought in the statutory language is what it sounds like. And and everyone's like kind of taking it and running. Am I? Am I... Yeah. And, and what's, what's awesome about that is... R&D already had a lot of authorities. So, so with, with true basic and applied research from the acquisition or assistance perspective, right? Taking the contracting nerd, nerd view of this, um, you already have a lot of authorities over there. So you had grants and cooperative agreements. You had something called technology investment agreements. And then you had this whole world of CRADAs and educational right. partnership agreements and test support agreements and all this other stuff that you can do when it comes to lab lab support and research. And so the, the difficulty there and the difficulty for labs always is that you can research and research and research, but you get funded by transitioning things. And so when you go to transition, that's where you get this, well, you used to get this weird void in, okay, we used all of our great authorities we had at assistance. We know we want to get to that contracting part that's either test or production somewhere there. And then in prototype world, what are we going to do? And, and so for a lot of time, that was R&D contracts, or you, you would use some kind of services contract because you, you didn't have the tools you needed. You had solicitation methods like broad agency announcement, but broad agency announcement is limited by regulation to basic applied and advanced research, that part of advanced, not including prototype, man, they couldn't make it more damaging to you, right? So, yeah. so they literally cut you off from getting to where you want to go with the prototype into test and then into production. So a very, very cool time where people were like, Hey, this thing looks like it'll get me, it'll fill a, fill a spot for me and I'm going to grab it and run with it. So 2015 was the NDAA that added follow-on production today get that right so 20 2016 is the ndaa signed in november of 2015 uh, so, and signed in calendar year 2015 yes so before that how were you i would say transitioning from prototype to something akin to a follow-on production like whatever that was before that was a thing yeah. So before that, in my experience, and and again, I'll give you my viewpoint and um, sure. a lot more creative people across both DOD, the services and the other federal agencies who have for decades found amazing solutions one way or the other, but there was a lot of, it was very transactional. So you do a research project, that project would end. Then you'd say, okay, how do we take what we learned on the research project and prototype? Let's do another competition. We'll we'll do another FAR contract. I know I specifically had a broad agency announcement in 2009 for a powertrain technology. And so we used broad agency announcement because we were looking for solutions that were at basic applied and advanced research. We certainly found, found some solutions. We awarded to a company. They performed on that. We eventually had to go back and do multiple contracts with them 
to get them through test and evaluation and into production. They did transition, however, which is a, is not, the majority of technologies do not transition. And so it was exciting to have one that actually transitioned. It made it into a platform in about 2019, I want to say, in a small lot. So think about yeah. that. I, in 2009, I'm soliciting for the advanced research of a technology. And 10 years later, a small pilot group production oh run makes it into a vehicle, not full rate production, not program or record, right? Yeah. Um, and so will that system ever make it program record? Possibly. But think about the life cycle of that. Yeah. I mean, nobody I worked with on that research effort is there anymore. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so 2016, there's going to make a little bit of an assumption because even I have yet not yet joined the Department of Defense, so I don't really know what's going on, but I'm assuming there was some momentum created after the the follow-on production language was added to the statute. I joined the Army in 2018, and I was hired to do just OT. So I feel like there was a shift or a swing, right, in terms of like, oh, how do we, like people were, I think, getting a little more creative or being a little bit more intentional about how to use OTs. What did you see from your perspective? Yeah, so in the in the 2015 area, maybe in 2014, I'll go back a little further. So a lot of people talk about, oh, it was the change in the statute that drove the popularity or the adoption of of OT or or the the increase in the the spend in the R and D budget on OT. And sure, you know that may be part of it, but it definitely is a cart horse situation because. You had Congress who was writing the law, but they were influenced by what they were seeing that was being successful as well. And so you had a group of folks at Army contracting at Picatinny who had been using OTs very creatively with their own model for a long time. And so, and so around that 2015, 2016 time, people were like, oh, hey, there's this there's this thing where you use consortia and you tie an agreement to it. And then it's, it's a consortium OTA and it's a, it's a model that you can use. Right. Right. Well, I'll tell you in Michigan, people didn't like that model. All right. So people in Michigan were like, I don't like it. It looks weird. It might be illegal. You know, those folks in New Jersey are all going to jail. We're going to stay away from it. And that was great. Except for those folks in New Jersey were putting billions of dollars through that mechanism. And it wasn't something new, some flash in the pan thing. The, the original DOTSI, Defense Ordnance Technology Consortium, traces its lineage back to the year 2000. And so in 2015, when, when I'm looking at this, it's 15 years old and no one's gone to jail yet. You know, so, so pretty good track record, 15 years, not to mention it's not the only one in 2015. In 2015, you've got, and I, this will not be an ex, uh, a comprehensive list, this off the right. top of my head, but you definitely have SEED and C5 managed by the CMG organization. You definitely have DOTSI managed by ATI. You definitely have a precursor to NSTXL which NXTXL actually started off with an energy consortium. No one, no one remembers that one. And so you had a number of, uh, you had all the, you had SOSEC at least in its, in its initial form. And then you had something called the Robotics Technology Consortium, which people know today as, 
as NAMSI, where it mm -hmm. changed its name and its focus. And then between 2015 and, and 2020, look out, right? You, you Those just explode. But let's take it back to 2015. There's folks with a model. It's working. It's, it's providing some speed in contracting. It's proving out prototypes that are transitioned. Those are all the things you want, right? You want to transition technology. You want to put it in the hands of the, of the end user. And so they're doing very well. DARPA still doing very well using these agreements. And then you've got, you know, small pockets here and there uh, of folks that are being successful with them. And so at TACOM, I get assigned to put one of these consortium model agreements in place. And this is a, a super interesting time to write one of these because the law has changed. And yet the DOD guidance has not. And so you have a new law. It's 2016. The law is new, right? right the right. guidebook that I used to write my next OTA was from 2002. That was the most recent DOD guidance at the time in 2016 um, on OTs. And so most of it was irrelevant. Uh, most of it could not be used, but that made it fun, right? That you got to create fun. your own journey. You had to create your own on that. That, uh, that OTA, I, I awarded the next year and I solicited and awarded off of sources sought in about 10 days. And so, and so it, you know, that'll never happen again. I'll tell you that, but it was, the time was right. Right. Um, hey, I'm going to put a source of sought out. I'm going to read a couple of responses. Whoever's the best partner for me. I'm going to do a down selection. I'm going to negotiate with them and I'm going to award. Now the negotiation took a long time because it was a truly commercial company and we did a truly commercial transaction like a negotiation and an agreement and nobody was, it was a new law and nobody was familiar, right? But three months doesn't feel so long when you've already made the selection, right? It felt yeah. good. The customer was in the room and we all felt good about what we were doing. It was, a, it was an exciting time. Why don't you think we can't do that again? You, it sounds like you, you had a source of thought. So you issued some kind of announcement or call where you were looking for competencies or I don't know, a skill, whatever, or an environment. You made a down select and you awarded. Why wouldn't that happen today? Yeah. When I, when I look at, at modern practices, in the OTA world, I see a couple pockets. I see the organization where you're at and the things they're doing with the trade one solution marketplace. I see the model and in, in so, some of the evolution of the model. And there's some folks doing some, some interesting stuff. Obviously, when the chips are down, things can things can move. I have some good friends who worked on Operation Warp Speed and what they did with that OTA project. There was a number of other really cool acquisition success stories that were not the pharmaceuticals that came out of the pandemic, also OT related. And so there's some fantastic success stories, but they're, they're one-offs. Mm -hmm. They're the exception to the rule. And they're always paired with some personality who who drives it who makes it happen i'm encouraged by some of the people i see coming along yourself at at cdao of course stephanie wilson at at rock island contracting craig gravitz over at health and human services at arpa h but the the folks that who in 2016 were the were the ones pushing this they have largely found their way into private industry of course myself included but 
almost to a number. You, you look at the, the folks who are at DIUX when it hit an X. You look at all the folks who really push the boundaries on what consortium OTAs could be and what standalone OTs could be. They're either in private practice, they're in venture capital, they're consultants, or they're in academia. But you can push really hard and, and it's great, but you can't do it forever. And, and that's where I feel like you really need these champions to make it happen. And it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel like you, you said a little bit too politely, basically the, the system, the bureaucracy kind of started to catch up to the, this mechanism because something happened in between this 2015, 2016 timeframe and 2018 when I joined the Department of Defense, because, well, I, I'll say from an Army standpoint, ACC New Jersey, I don't know, had this this self-appointed or recognition uh, that they were like the OT center of the Army or something like that. And and again, I'm I'm an outsider looking in. I don't know anything about DOD culture, OT, like OTs from a DOD perspective and how they've been used the past 20 years or so. And I looked, I, I, I went, they sent me Rock Island. I was working for ACC Rock Island. I was matrix to PM defensive cyber operations at Fort Belvoir, but I reported to ACC Rock Island because again, they wanted to build the whole OT program to do rapid acquisition. And, you know, they wanted all the players on site, including contracting. They wanted testing on site. They wanted the end user, right? They want industry there, huge, big vision, right? And I show up and I'm just trying to level set a little bit on like, what do, what do OTs for the department mean? They send me to Picatinny, I do the training. And I was a little surprised, you know, a lot of the training that Picatinny was giving me, it, it looked like FAR contracting, traditional contracting. And I didn't understand. And I was, and once I understood, oh, this is just their policy. Like this isn't, this isn't a thing. Like it's just the policy they've imposed on themselves for whatever reason. So something happened in that time frame. I don't know or understand it because at that point in time, I, th I think you hit on a good point. Like clearly what people understood OTs to be or what they should be and how you should work them, it was looking and smelling a lot like traditional contracting. And I was, and so that was, it was just something for me to process. And um, fortunately, I, I had some big thinkers on my team. So I think we tried to be a little bit more creative. From your perspective, do you think it was like, like you said, people were leaving, the, the champions were leaving, or as things started to scale, did just policy, you know, people just start adopting more policy and didn't want to take too much risk? Or I don't know, what what do you think was going on in that time frame? Yeah, so so between 2016 and 2017, we get we get our first update to a guide, a whole new guide which is interesting because it comes out of DPAP. And so defense procurement and policy, acquisition policy. I don't remember what they stand for. So, so DPAP releases a guide, probably not the right organization for the new OT guide, but it's the only guide we have that's not the 2002 guide. Um, and it's pretty open. It's pretty open. It uh, was. The chief architect of it, Victor Deal. He's a pretty, he's a pretty open guy. Um, and of course it gives us the new concept of the CSO. A lot of people, when they think of CSO today, they think about deviations and GSA and, and uh, regulation and, and how the rules work, but that's not how CSO started off. CSO started off as an idea between DPAP at the time, Victor and DIUX 
um, David Rosside and, and some of the folks that were there saying, hey, we need a solicitation method that works for us. Broad agency announcement isn't cutting it because of where it cuts off. Right. We, want, we don't want to do an RFP. We want to do kind of a broad agency announcement, but we want it to be for later technology. The OTA lets us create any solicitation method we want. We'll just create a new thing and we'll call it commercial solutions opening. And so to me, to this day, as a, I guess, as a self-professed old timer now, that's the true CSO. The, the true CSO is I will write it however the hell I want. It's going to go into an OTA. I'm not worried about your deviation or your regulation because I'm not following that CSO. I'm following the CSO that is a, a solicitation that goes directly in an OTA. And the only standard I have to worry about is fair, transparent, and reasonable, which is the OT standard under competition. Um, and as long as I do that, then I'm fine. And so I think in 2017, we were still accelerating. We were getting new solicitation methods. You know, we had, we still, we had some rice bowls in 2017, right? You had New Jersey, you had DARPA, you had my group coming out of TACOM, you had DIUX, you had some other groups that were kind of, kind of massaging on what, you know, what does the best look like? What's the best going to be? But the unique part of that environment is we all kind of collaborated for for a time in in really uh designing what the state of the art could be. I don't think that was the spirit forever. I, I think people revert back to what they understand, which is if I'm going to be the best, other people got to be the worst. I was speaking at an event in 2019. Hondo Gertz was speaking. Uh, it was the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum uh, annual meeting. And uh, he brought up this exact issue of, in his words, there's nothing that big Navy loves better than to see all you innovation groups fighting each over each other over who's the most innovative because they're just going to wait you out. And then, and then when you're done with all that innovating, they can go back to business as usual. I do feel like in 2018, we started to feel that, especially after the, the Oracle case. So the Oracle decision was the big was the big, you know, item that came around that 2017, 2018 timeframe. I think it was, it was right before. Yeah, it was 2017 or 2018. It was right before I came over. Cause I remember I printed that case out just in case, like I needed to refer back to it or something like that. Yeah. And so I was at space and missile center when that decision came down out in, where is that at LA air force base? I think. Um, I was out there speaking on flexibilities in other transactions with an actual group of Air Force folks from Wright-Patterson, uh, folks from DIUX. Um, we kind of had a little crew on a road show where we were talking about, hey, here's, here's these ideas that we tried and they worked. We've got more ideas. We want to really push and we're going to keep pushing. And then that decision came down. And of course, I, I, I was with I was with somebody who worked on that. I'm good friends with somebody oh, wow. from, from ACC New Jersey who was the agreements officer on it. And so it came down, of course, I read the decision and I'm like, this is not what the law says. These, right. these guys got it wrong. Bill Greenwald wrote a great article after that explaining how they got it all wrong. And of course, all of this is moot now because the 2023 NDAA has resolved the issue and, and kind of put the nail in the coffin of GAO's decision. But at the time, it was an opportunity for a lot of 
naysayers to say, aha, I showed you guys, these things are all going to put you in jail. And here's the proof. They're all evil. And look at DIUX is going to get their hand slapped. The reality was that I, I wrote an article on this and it was in, in GovExec on the fact that the decision really did nothing to OTs. Uh, the reality was the DIUX had got more than 20 proposals for that project. They had a super robust competition. They down-selected off a, a great list of, of providers, selected a company. They performed the prototyping efforts successfully, and then they wanted to go to production. Exactly right. what the statute was built for. Right. The, the, the political pressure of, of having Oracle come in um, and ultimately getting a very weird decision, which didn't appear to be, and I, to this day I'll say is not in line with what the law said, um, ended up killing the big deal, the production deal, but it didn't kill the prototyping effort. And, no. and for folks like me, I said, okay, what do I have to do to, to adjust for this? I'll write yep. one sentence in every one of my solicitations from now on, the end. Yeah, yeah I was going to say we adjusted. It was, it was very clear after that, okay, we won't make that mistake again. And we kind of moved on, at least from my perspective, like we didn't, it was kind of a, it was a thing we were aware of, but it didn't stop us. You said the FY23 NDAA kind of settled the argument. Would you agree it was more about exercising the use of statutory authority and it was less about the actual like selection of the company, like whether it was appropriate that they used OT authority? Yeah, so so for to gain jurisdiction, GAO has to say it's it, it's you've applied the statute incorrectly because otherwise, if it's just a bid protest, they don't have jurisdiction and they can't, they right. can't decide on it. Um, and so their their decision was that according to the statute, the potential to go to follow-on production was not written into the language of the transaction, whatever that means, I'll tell you, okay, whatever whatever the word transaction means at that time. The, the amazing part about that is when you think about the practicality of the follow-on production decision, when do I want to know if follow-on production is a possibility? I want to know in the solicitation. And DIU had put in the solicitation that follow-on production was, was a potential for that agreement. And so GAO comes in and goes, oh yeah, yeah, you had it in the solicitation, but that's not what matters for the purposes of the statute. What matters is it needs to be in the agreement, which, which makes no sense in terms of, of when you would need to know for, for the purposes right. of whether you're going to bid or not. The other piece is Oracle didn't bid. Right. And, and and so you you get this weird situation where everyone followed the rules, everyone had a fair competition, you did everything you needed for a fair competition, and then a company who is not an interested party, who didn't bid on the effort, comes in and says, oh, there's a technicality in there somewhere, we think, because we don't have access to the agreement, um, and, and we're going to complain about it. GAO's decision is just wild. It, it's so unexpected at that time. Um, because it really doesn't tie to what the concerns are. If mm -hmm. Oracle was concerned, hey, we would have we would have bid if we would have known there was $950 million cloud services agreement right. on the back end. But they did know it was in the solicitation. So super bizarre deci decision really didn't align to any of the normal concerns about procurement. And it just seemed like such an outlier at the time. It still seems like such an outlier. 
obviously all of us practitioners were able to adjust super easy because it was a dumb decision. Um, but in 20, the 23 NDA, now they come back and they say, oh yeah, yeah, you don't need it. You don't need it in there or the solicitation. Everybody should know that you can always go to follow on production because it's in the law. It's in the statute, exactly. Uh, yeah, one that of the was, arguments I, that was made back in the day, yeah. in the way, um, which, which yeah. you know, didn't like. <laughs> That's interesting. Any other updates in the, because there was a few, I would say OT specific updates in the 23 NDAA. Anything else that surprised yeah, you I, or there's worth a, noting? There's, there's a couple that are definitely worth noting. For the intelligence agencies, the 23 NDAA incorporates the Intelligence Authorization Act as well for 23. Um, Section 6711 gives the intelligence agencies, all of them, OT authority that looks like DOD's OT authority. Unfortunately for the intelligence agencies, sorry, some sloppy drafting is going to cause you some trouble. It has the concept of Small Business Innovation Research Program, as we know, is, is in the statute. That is going to transfer over to them, as well as the as well as the tr the concept of non-traditional defense contractor. On the big DOD side, we spent most of our, our time on that side. We don't really worry about that because we think about small businesses and CIBR and, and non-traditionals. Those are not concepts that the intelligence community has to think about. Um, and now they're going to have this double duty of, okay, I have to learn all about the small business stuff and makes codes and stuff that doesn't apply to me because it's going to come up when I'm doing these NDC oh, determinations. Um, so I, I think that's probably just an oversight that, that needs to be cleaned up for them. As you know, Bonnie, on the, on the, on the Homeland Security side or Department of Energy side, there's non-traditional government contractors, right? Not that we, we drop the fence, but it's the same concept. It is. It's the same concept. And, you know, that concept is, is, is curious. And, and I'm hoping it's going to come up in another provision of section 6711, which says that the intelligence agencies have to give a report back to Congress in a year that says whether the Department of Defense authority is good enough for them, whether it works, or whether they need the TSA authority the authority that you're familiar with and whether they need that authority to operate on. And I, I'm very interested in that because, because one thing that, that people don't track, if you, if you track the history of, of OTs all the way back, is these, these non-traditional defense contractors have always been in there so, to some degree, but they've been defined differently. And so if you go with the, the first definition of non-traditional defense contractor or non-traditional government contractor after 2002, when, when Homeland Security gets their authority, they were a company who hasn't done a $500,000 contract with the government, research and development contract with the government. What's interesting about that is under that definition, even, even your, your silver companies don't qualify. Your silver companies would be a traditional under that definition. And I mean, $500,000 in a year, most companies that do defense contractors are above that. So they're going to be traditionals. And so the, the original definition, man, everyone's a traditional. And then you get the change in the law and all of a sudden almost nobody's a traditional anymore right um, even even large companies with commercial business units can can get around that and so and so we have this really weird situation where this traditional defense contractor thing, thing seems really important 
but the definitions have, have fluctuated so so rapidly that they really have made them meaningless. And then you're going to go to the intelligence community and say, hey, this is all kind of messed up, but you guys apply it in an environment where you never have to apply it. And so that's going to be super curious. <laughs> yeah. Co copy paste over there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure there was some copy paste and, uh, and folks probably were like, oh, wait a minute. That doesn't apply to them normally. Let's see how it plays out. Right? Yeah. There's one more provision that that got me a little riled up on on this last one because we because we heard a lot about follow-on production in 23 and we continue to try to clean up on follow-on production on on 23 but in 23 they changed the rules on follow-on production and now they're applying the what i will call the participation requirement and so folks that are familiar with the statute will know that this is sub D, little d, which is the section where you find the requirements on, on who needs to be participating in order to use the statute. And so that section has, has four subsections and it, and it talks about non-traditional defense contractors or non-profit research institutions. We talked about those. Then it talks about participants in the Small Business Innovation Research Program. Uh, it doesn't specifically say SIBR. It, it, it um, cites the statute. That's why people don't usually see that. And then you have the cost share provision. The last one you have is the, is the hey, I go beg for mercy because yeah. I need the first three, which no one wants to sign because you have no the one. first three things, right? Right. And so the, the 23 NDAA comes in and says, you know what? We, we want this scheme to apply to the follow-on production as well. Yeah. It has never applied to the follow-on production because it makes no sense. And, and I don't know if it's an oversight or if this was deliberate, but if it's deliberate, the folks simply don't understand how, how business works because ultimately the companies that are doing prototype projects often, especially in the software world, but often are companies that want to license the technology. They want to come in, they want to develop, they want to get government money to develop, and then they want to take turn around and license that to somebody else to manufacture or fabricate and then and then sell at scale and then they can make royalties off it and go back to doing what they do well, yeah. which is prototype. Well, what um, about the significant participation from a non-traditional? Did that carry over to production? So, and significant participation carried over as well. And so, so wouldn't that wouldn't that apply in your scenario? It, it would absolutely apply. So now, now as someone who's going to inherit from you, I'm disincentivized now to take over and go uh, production run because now I got to use you. I got to hope that the government is going to recognize your license as significant. I see. Because I'm thinking, I would I would totally recognize that as a like they can't do the thing without the license so that's a significant participation but you're right that's that's a subjective or a discretionary interpretation i, I suppose yeah it's an ad hoc interpretation and i gotta go contracting off or agreements officer by agreements officer and hope that they're gonna recognize how the how life works and that yeah you know the the business decision isn't the same um, I think, especially in our recent experience with, with biopharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical companies in, in terms of those that, that develop and prototype and do clinical testing versus those who manufacture, um, 
this should be at the top of our mind. This should not be a surprise to us that there are companies that develop and prove out the prototype. And then there's companies that come in and buy that and then go and manufacture it. All right. And those companies, guess what? They're not going to be non-traditionals. <laughs> They're going to be humongous. Yeah. All right. Um, so I, I got some good feedback from some other practitioners who, who work in the area and some of those folks who um, support the staffers or, or the attorneys. Um, and maybe there's a revision coming on that, maybe not, um, but it's going to play out in the worst way. And what I mean by that is um, maybe there's a workaround. As we know, for the Oracle case, there was a very quick workaround. Um, but for every one of these misguided decisions or, or poor drafting, it takes a lot of man hours and a lot of energy and a lot of creative energy for people to create the workaround and then implement the workaround and then get, get their boss to accept that they're going to use a workaround. Um, and so uh, those are things yeah. that, that we need to address. We can't have sloppy drafting up front because we waste a lot of energy working around it on the back end. Yeah, Stephanie, Stephanie Wilson, the agreements officer you mentioned earlier, and, and I believe she's one of the best out there. She, she said, um, we like to throw, especially in particular when it comes, when we're talking about OTs, we like to throw policy at the stuff we don't understand. So I'm curious what could have been bubbling up to the surface that they felt they had to put policy on the follow-on OT stuff? Was there too much money going into it and too many people were complaining, like they didn't like that? It's curious what's behind that. We know that that just, you can say that OTs are getting a lot of adoption, but they remain a fraction of the budget. Yeah. Um, and so we have to look at the entire budget and we have to look at the entire discretionary budget. And then we have to look at the entire R&D budget and, and you work your way down. And as you work your way down, you realize, hey, you know, these, these fit in a niche, right? There's a certain color yeah. of money. There, there's a certain type of projects that they're being used for. Um, you know, when, when we see them used for, for large efforts, we feel like they're large, but then you look at the sustainment budget or, yeah. you know, you look at the, the, any other budget and you say, okay, I'm back to reality on how many dollars we're talking about here. Um, but obviously there's some impetus there on, on what's driving it. Would have loved to note, right? Hey, Congress is pissed about about the Pfizer vaccine costing so much. No more OTs for any of you. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> what's what's your favorite? And when I say favorite, um, you know, like just what the one the one pattern you see the most maybe um that that might irk you the most uh in terms of like how OTs are used because I think you're right. I think for me, because uh, OTs are, I've definitely fallen into this niche of non-FAR-based contracting. So I'm doing it all the time. And I feel, and sometimes I forget, like I'm the exception, not the norm. Like most people are not doing these things and around people who are doing these things. So they're not hearing and feeling the same things. So you're right at scale. It's hard to even have conversations about non-FAR-based contracting because people don't understand them fundamentally, what they are, how they work and what the mechanism and like what their potential is. So when you see, when I see even policy coming out, I see memos coming out now from EPC and, and they start grinding my gears a little bit because I'm like, 
I'm not sure they like I feel like they're they're just doing the comfortable thing and they're trying to fit the square peg in the round hole thing. And what kinds of patterns do you see either from practitioners or from a policy perspective where you're like, that's not relevant. Why are you doing it that way? Something like that. Yeah, and I'll share one of mine because I, I can't. I, so I'll, I'll give you a couple and I'm, I'm going to pick on the creatives and I'm going to pick on the non-creatives. All right. Okay. All right. So one thing that, that we, as a community, I feel that we're struggling to get past is, is the application of schemes and or regulatory structures. I'll, I'm going to bring them both in here where they don't belong. And, and so uh, I think this is broader than OTs. So as contracting professionals, and I'll speak super generally here, but in my own experience as a contracting professional, step one in my career is I had to learn about the federal acquisition regulation. And for me, because I worked at DOD, I had to learn about the, the defense supplement. And then in addition to that regulation, there's laws that are the, the important part, right? The regulate, regulation's important, but it's the implementation of the law. You need to know what those laws are and you need those for your job. You, you need those to, to, you know, you have lawyers that'll help you, but ultimately it's your job to be a working practitioner within a regulation and understand how it's tied to the law. And you have to know that it's it's super important to, to advise your your clients, which your clients are the program offices or labs or or sustainment commands or whoever needs the, the stuff that that you're going to help them get. And so super important. Right. But then you find yourself working in an environment with a different regulatory structure or a different guidance or policy that, again, is all tied to law. And you have to know that as well. And so we in that situation, we end up with this. This weird situation where folks folks either want to take those regulations from the far side or statute as well and apply it because that's what they're comfortable with. Or we end up in a situation where folks are like, I'm in a new environment. I don't want to take anything from that old environment, which may technically be true. Okay. Technically it's not applicable. But man, when you learn something good. Why not bring it with you? Why not bring some of that knowledge to the table, right? Why are we always starting over? Because um, it's painted. <laughs> and so, and so I, and I hear these arguments often from non-practitioners in our, in our profession where they say, oh, you got an OT with DFARS in there. It's evil. That's totally wrong. Those people are terrible at life, right? And it's like, maybe it totally applied in this situation and it was a shortcut. And maybe they're the smartest people you ever met. How about that? And then there is a situation where you see it dumped in there and it doesn't belong in there because the person didn't know why it's in there. And, and um, I probably see this the most in intellectual property. I probably see it most in, in data rights and patent and, and copyright in which people don't know. And so they, they violate both at the same time. They pull over some stuff that probably shouldn't be in there. And they avoid pulling in stuff that would have been very helpful for them. But simply, it's because they don't know. And, and that's the trick of the profession. The trick of the profession is to understand why those things exist, where they came from, why they were created, what problem they solved in the past, and whether you have the same problem today or not. Because if you have the same problem, then they're a great shortcut and you should use them. And, and I will tell you, I, I don't crap on people who put 
DFAR stuff in the OT if they know why, and it was a shortcut. I don't find a lot of people that know why, but when I do, it's really cool to see someone and say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the government purpose rights definition. I'm going to drop it in here because both the government and the companies who are going to bid this, that's what they understand, but I'm going to acknowledge that I'm doing it and why. And so um, what, what, what gets me fired up recently is people don't know the why, and then it leads to a really bad situation in which you're, you're both negotiating on terms that you don't understand. And then down the line, it's not, I mean, you're going to end up in a bad situation, but when people are great at it and, and I'm okay with, with putting that DFAR stuff in a, in a license, if, if that's what the parties understand and that's what the best practices are for them and it solves the problem, there's plenty of people in the quote unquote hashtag innovation, I'm going to call it industry, hashtag innovation industry, who make money off other people by talking about innovation. And, and they'll go with this blanket uh, phrase of, oh, you can't put any regulation in your OTs or, or you don't know what you're doing. That's not always the case. So I, to me, it's both sides, right? And unfortunately, that's uh, the reason why that, that answer is such a good answer to me is because it's the boring and the hard answer that no one wants to talk about. It's much easier to say, you know, if you put DFARS in your OT, you're stupid. Or if you don't use DFARS, you're stupid. It's much harder to say, oh, every contract, I'm going to figure it out. And um, so I'm seeing a lot of that lately. Really bad IP terms where the parties don't understand what they're doing. Since you said that, what if somebody said, oh, well, I'm just going to, it's not just one or two FAR terms, but they're, they're, their OT essentially looks like a FAR contract in terms of how it's structured. Like it's sections, you know, A through J kind of thing. And, and they do, and what if they said their reasoning was because it was the easy, you know, it was, it was appropriate and it fit and it was the easy button for them, or, you know, it was like a shortcut to get to yes or something like that. Would you still, I see, I, I, I still would, that? I still would. I, I think there's courses of dealing in any market. We, we happen to work in the defense market. And so there are courses of dealing that the companies are familiar with and that the government's familiar with. And courses of dealing grow up, grow up around problems you solve, laws that are passed, policy considerations that you have, terminology that you use. And so, and so why create, recreate the wheel every time? Now, that being said, if you wanna invite new friends to the party, and all you're going to do is tell inside jokes the entire time, then people are going to quit showing up because they're going to be bored. And so if you really want to attract new companies, you got you either have to use terminology that they will understand, or you have to explain what you're doing. Um, so if someone came to me and said, hey, I, I'm borrowing from DFARS for this IP scheme, I'm using uniform commercial format for this OT because I think people know where to go. But I have some new people coming, so I'm going to explain what this is all about. Then that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think there's probably if you're if you're incorporating by reference, that's probably where I would draw the line. I have seen some OTs recently that have you know 50 clauses incorporated by reference. Oh my um, god! There, there's Lovely. no way you read all those clauses and have yeah. decided they should be in there. 
you mentioned earlier, you loved R&D because it was like a team sport and that was fun for you. And that's kind of like the environment you thrived in. I think prototype OTs are also very much a team sport. All of like, you're creating something new together, um, like everybody. And I like being able to talk in a language, like, like a layman's way, like, like let's talk in a language that everyone can understand. And you brought up a good point though. Like that could be different in every setting, depending on who, who's on the team. But for me, like every, I guess I, maybe I'm a little sensitive to this because maybe in general or at, at scale, the workforce is, is more, like you said, if they're, if they're using FAR techniques and structures and language, then that to me, maybe I'm assuming that means they're being lazy and they're, they're doing right. They're, they're doing the thing they know and understand, but is it the thing the team knows and understands? And that's, so positionally I'll go in with like, let's do this more. Let's, is there a commercial look that is more attractive to the, to the team, even for the government? And the one, if I were to like knock a little bit on use of OTs and government policy right now, what's hard or challenging from my perspective is I don't, to your point about the, was it that combat system you were talking about? Everyone blamed OTs for why it wasn't successful. The OT mechanism itself, I agree, is not the problem. And, and we can buy things rapidly, like at speed and using great language, whether it's far or not far language, like all day long. But at the end of the day, when it comes to adoption in the government, like that's where things stop. And I think that's why people are getting OT fatigue because the projects get awarded and then like they kind of fizzle out, the champions leave or it's too hard to get the actual software integrated to the government stuff. Like even right now from like a, a contracting lens, we have to, we don't have any creative agency to do invoicing. We have to use wide area workflow, which is the Department of Defense like system and stuff like that. And, and although there is business sense and logic as to why you have to do that, but there's, again, what if there's a condition where that doesn't work. Like you don't have any creative agency around that. And so that's where you start looking at, you mentioned for software people to license and stuff like that. That's where you can look at maybe, okay, is there someone they can work with to help them with that? But why is it that hard? So that's where I get a little riled up around. Well, I, I do like it, it, I do like that you coined a new term, which is fatigue. <laughs> OTA fatigue, fatigue. <laughs> Fatigue. One thing on 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 fatigue, and I love that term. We use it now. There was a common thing that was said back in the day. I hear it less now, but it's still said from time to time, which is, "Oh, you're doing an OT. The proper way to do an OT is to start from a blank piece of paper, and then sit down with the the solution provider and and write what your agreement would be." And I understand the philosophy of that. Got it. Totally get it. I, I understand, right? It's, yeah. it's collaborative. We want to, we're, the world is, we can do whatever we want and it's all custom. It, I mean, that's the philosophy. But then, but then this is dropped on the end of it. Like they do in commercial industry, right? Well, hey, I worked in commercial industry. So, so let's start there, all right? As a very young uh, associate attorney doing commercial transactions, my boss came to me and he said, hey, Ben, I want you to go negotiate this deal and write this contract for this uh, construction company. I didn't know anything about construction and I was brand new, right? And so I was put in that situation, right? Blank piece of paper, two parties, let's write a construction contract. But in the real world, that's not how it's done, right? 
I take the firm templates. They might not be a, a form contract, but they may be a series of clauses tied to a topic called the form book, right? And I'd say, oh, we're going to do this kind of construction. All right, I've got four or five starting points for us to use. Let's grab one of those starting points and we'll start from that. Why am yeah. I using starting points? Because I know how they litigate. Yeah. The starting points aren't magic. They went through a lawsuit somewhere and we know that they're good for a certain purpose. And so in government contracting, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're drafting legal instruments that can be litigated and, and have been litigated. And we know how that language plays out. And so I love the concept of let's sit down and write on the blank piece of paper in, in that part of it. But how about we bring in all of our tools while we do it? The FAR and DFARS is one. I use the Uniform Commercial Code as an example for a couple of clauses on one of my OTs one time. There's other things you can pull from to use. And ultimately, that's the best practice to me. The blank paper sounds really pretty. That sounds amazing. But what inevitably happens on the blank piece of paper, and this happened to me in the government, is I went there with my blank piece of paper and then everybody looked at each other and they were like, where can, yeah. where can we find a shortcut? This sucks. Right, right, right. <laughs> Would you still make the case? So, Because why are we talking about OTs? Like we've spent like an hour talking about OTs, like the ins and outs of them. So I still believe OTs are one of the primary non-FAR-based contracting mechanisms that should and must be used for, in particular, emerging technology to include AI. Do you agree? Would you make the case for that? What would you say? Since I've left DOD, which has been just a little over three years now, I continue to work pretty much exclusively in the emerging technology space. And it has become very clear to me that you just can't beat the flexibility in terms of contracting for emerging technology of, of other transactions. I've definitely helped folks with other agreements, a lot of cyber efforts, bought through contract, CREDA's technology investment agreement, co cooperative agreement. Like all these instruments have a purpose, but, but OTA really is that wild card that allows you to sit down and, and craft it how you need to, to make it work. I think there's there's a danger in conflating OTs with the competitive front end of, of the effort, which is the OT to me is the instrument that you should use to write emerging technology contracts. How you right. solicit, that that's up to you how you solicit. Like how you right. frame your competition is, is up to you. Uh, I think the the challenge is the, the, it's endless, right? It's endless possibilities on how to set up that competition. You have something like an annual plan or use a prize challenge into an OTA or, or you have something like the, the solutions marketplace through your team where it's just a video pitch and then their technical merits applied and then you're in or you're out. All the solicitation methods are, are an arena for super creativity, um, but at the end of them, you have to contract. And, and when it comes to the contract, I, I just don't see a better mechanism today than the other transaction and whether that's whether that's at the R&D level or or the prototype level or test or production or services even it's just the best instrument that's out there today for modernizing DOD is it the best instrument for buying the next box of screws it is not <laughs> that an IDIQ is the best instrument or or BPA or BOA are the best instruments to buy the next box of screws gotcha and, and when I did the job, 
those were the fastest instruments and, and I used them. Right. But when it comes to emerging technology, they are not the instruments. This is the instrument. Totally agree. Since you mentioned competition, the other thing that grinds my gears is Competition and Contracting Act. People will apply full and open competition as defined or uh, as the regulations have interpreted that statute and it's just not applicable for OT. So to your point about endless possibilities and opportunities, you don't have to do a full, uh, what we would consider traditionally full and open competition type activity. You can be a little bit more creative, right? Yeah, and and I'm gonna, I will speak to that and then I'm gonna go a step further on it in that Congress passes the laws. Sorry, practitioners, you don't. And so when you decide to compete a partner intermediary agreement or compete a CRADA or, <laughs> or compete a, oh, a, a 2373, that's not 2370, something else. Yep. It's 4023, um, I think. So when you do that, this is what you've done, okay? You've created a situation where you second guess the law, right? You say, right. oh, the law's not good enough. I, practitioner, have decided that it requires competition and I am now writing the standard myself that I'm right. going to apply. Well, here's the problem. When you get litigated, you are going to get litigated against your standard. And the, and the government's going to look back and say, okay, the standard was no competition. You created a competition. And so now, now we're going to analyze whether we think you're reasonable in what you've done. And yeah. so I, there's just like, you know, everybody, it, it is the culture, especially the contracting folks, it is the culture that our job is comp it's fair competition. That is the job, fair competition. Right. I mean, um, we've been programmed so good, yeah. right? Fair did you do a good job today? I competed the hell out of, I competed a no money OTA and I'm going to do a source selection. It's going to take three years. I'm kicking ass at fair yeah. competition, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That's the job. The problem is that's not the job, all right? It, yeah. And I'm sorry, contracting folks, but we are super cool in our own minds. But at the end of the day, getting the service of the product to the customer is the job. And so if Congress decided you don't have to compete, you probably shouldn't add a competition requirement. Now, I think that should be clear for the ones with no competition requirement. There's several out there that have no competition requirement. Remember, right. if you create one, you created it. <laughs> People are, what they're going to complain about is you, because you're the one that created it. And so the other piece of that is that what you brought up before, though, is that Congress decided what the competition standards should be. And so when they wrote the OT standard, by the way, the OT standard, same standard as cooperative agreements and grants, not something new or novel, all right? Competitive procedures to the maximum extent practicable has existed a long time. It exists in grants and cooperative agreements. And what does that mean? It means it's been litigated. And so when you provide a SECA-like process against OTAs, you're taking the wrong statute and putting it against an OT where it doesn't belong. Right. And when it gets litigated, you're going to have a mess on your hands. Yeah. So I'm pretty distraught about competitive procedures. We have we have open calls like CSO. Some people just call it an open call. Um, there's a BODA, which is a broad other transaction BODA. announcement. There's BAs. There's all these different solicitation methods. And then they have a competition standard that applies to them. 
and they're different and you have to understand them and you have you have to work the different ones differently um but yeah applying sika uh, again remember what sika stands for or right competition and contracting yeah. act comes out in 94 and what is the sika rule compete everything to everybody all the time that's the rule right that's the general rule we compete yes. every last thing to everybody in the world every single time that's the general rule right and then we have six exemptions and seven exceptions to that <laughs> right which, which which creates all sorts of fun stuff and then you've got all the policy programs that are accepted from it and you have right. as a contracting professional you have to learn all of that and that's a lot of stuff then you come to the ot environment don't bring that baggage with you right <laughs> the standard does not compete everything to everyone all the time with exceptions right enumerated exceptions the standard is competitive procedures to the maximum, maximum extent guess practical. what you're you're a smart person sometimes no competition is practicable right i'm going to tell one quick anecdote i hope this okay this one we might have to cut out we'll see <laughs> okay let's try so i had a, a company that i wanted to do a credo with right um cooperative research and development agreement is not the same as cooperative agreement they are they are justified by two separate statutes those get mixed up a lot but in a cooperative research and development agreement crada there is no competition requirement whatsoever right and in fact the only thing that you really negotiate is what the the ip is going to be uh between mm -hmm. the two we struggled with credas where i was at so so we decided we would go with an unfunded other transaction agreement all right research research agreement unfunded r d ota the standard was this company was going to provide us access to their computer aided virtual environment which was near the post where i was at and uh, we would use it from time to time and the only rules were you can use it whenever you want as long as you schedule with the other folks who who use it and be a good be a good tenant like the rest of the folks that have access to it. All right, cool. We'll do that. And then in return, since we're getting free access to their environment, we would analyze some data for them and deliver the data. And it was kind of in-kind trade, which is typical of your creda. So they were within five miles of, of the place. That's where the engineers wanted to go. It was quick. I could pop over there and run some data and come back. And so I was going to write them a, a sole source. Oh my God, sole source. Oh sole my God. source, no money. Oh my God. OT. Well, you bet you're behind that the lawyers would not accept that in the competition standard. And we had to run a competition for it. Oh my God. Stop. Uh, my my Are response, you serious? I had to run a competition for this. My, oh my response God. was, if we can avoid a competition, I will put an announcement out and I will award a no money OT to every single company who offers me access to their computer, their their uh, their virtual environment cave. I probably won't ever use them because they're not close and I'm not going to pay for people to fly there, but I will absolutely award to them. And that was not a good enough for my attorneys. And we ended up running a competition. My SES was fuming came down to my office to rip me a new one. And while it wasn't my fault, it was my fault because I was in charge of, of getting that, that effort done. So I, I well, already from the lived attorney. It. Yeah, it's too late. I've already lived it. But for the rest of you, 
especially the attorneys, help your people out. Don't do ridiculous stuff. And, and the competition standard is the extent practicable. And that means that your agreements officer is going to have to make like a people decision, subjective people decision on practicality. And that is the standard. <laughs> Well, I think that's a nice little closing because, I mean, at the end of the day, the, you said it well, the job is to deliver the thing, right, to the customer. Um, and if you're, so if you're saying, you know, to get what, whatever the conditions are, whatever it may be, this is the best way to for us to, to do this project or get this prototype, whatever is going on, you know, that is allowable. Everyone should know that. I really appreciate you nerding out a little bit with me on this stuff. I do think this stuff is important because everyone's doing this stuff experientially. There's no standard curriculum that are helping people understand these nuances and these concepts that kind of we're playing with and we're talking about. So I do appreciate your time. Anything else you want to just throw out there that's on your mind, OT-wise or emerging technology-wise? No, I'm, I think we've covered everything I, we can. I will say... For all the dates that I got incorrect or out of order, that's a great opportunity for anybody in the community to correct me and we'll add it into the, the annals of history for other transactions. But uh, I think we got pretty close, pretty close on dates and legislation. So I think, we, I think we've advanced the, the state of the art iteratively here. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you talking with me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation, and I wanted to thank Bonnie again for keeping that conversation going and giving us all the information we needed out of this episode today. We hope to see everyone again in the next episode of AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today. Bye, everyone. for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today.